Dr. Kira Kremen lectures in sociology and leads the gender studies program at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Her work draws on Marxist, psychoanalytic, and critical theory perspectives to diagnose the human condition in capitalism today. She has published a number of books, including Man-Made Woman, that reflects on her early experiences of presenting publicly as a woman, and The Future is Feminine, which we discuss in this episode. In part one, we delve into the values, behaviors, and aesthetic choices typically associated with masculinity and how these standards reproduce cycles of violence, the ways in which masculinity can be interpreted as a psychological disorder, how capitalism caters to masculinity, and much, much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Kira Kremen, the author of The Future is Feminine, Capitalism and the Masculine Disorder. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Kira. Very excited to chat. I think already from the title, it's clear that there's a lot that we'll be able to unpack together. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. It's a, a delight to be on the podcast with you. So... Why don't you tell me a little bit about your motivation for writing this book? I think it kind of relates back to when I first came out as a trans woman about five years ago. And and I wrote a book called Man-Made Woman, where I was uh, charting the development and uh, experiences of presenting publicly. And over time, I I think I, I really felt that changes had occurred in me and my perspective on myself, if you like, prior to coming out became sort of more let's say, harsher. And I, that many of these sort of symptoms, you could say, of, of being masculinized were, were more apparent to me and, and put in a kind of sharper relief. And, and I thought about this and, and all the kind of talk around toxic masculinity and people criticizing the likes of Trump and these alpha males and thinking about all these young men who commit massacres. I thought, well, obviously, these are serious problems that we need to address. But I was thinking that there's a kind of more banal and everyday problem with the way we're masculinized and that we tend to lose sight of because we focus on those extreme examples. And so I wanted to sort of pull back from the extreme and think about how masculinity is, as an ego formation is itself, a, in a sense, a, a sickness, a, a born of a sick society. And I started with that kind of provocation that masculinity has all the symptoms of a psychological disorder. It's a very strong basis on which to start a, a book and, and obviously one that would need defending and, and qualifying. And the whole book really is, is doing that. And part of the thing there is what does masculine, what is not masculine? What is the problem that those who are masculinized have? And it, everything indexes back to the feminine, which I'm sure we can talk about later. I do want to get into talking about masculinity as a psychological disorder, but I want to locate this convert or anchor this conversation in some terminology. So I was wondering, because I think there is some issues with some people have an issue distinguishing between female and femininity, masculinity and maleness. How would you define masculinity and femininity? I would say that, you know, obviously masculinity and femininity are gendered positions. They're they're not fixed terms. They can mean different things in different spaces and times. 
And also the very terms male and female are, are contested in many different ways. But I would say that the, what I'm describing here in, in terms of like, I mean, going back to Bell Hooks, who said that patriarchy demands of boys and men that they commit acts of psychic self-mutilation. If not done to themselves, then others will do it to them. And what, what she's essentially referring to, all those qualities that I think any good parent would want to nurture in their child, such as caring for others, sensuality, kindness, tenderness, not being afraid to show one's frailties. And and these, these of course, are, are associated with femininity, whether rightly or wrongly. And, and masculinity then is what that is not. And we could obviously refer to things like this, that sense of entitlement, tendency towards aggression, being closed in their emotions and not, not having the kind of repertoire of emotions to be able to deal with uh, things of humiliation and so forth. And these qualities are, are not, to use the terms male and female, uh, let, let's just say, those born with unambiguous genitalia, a penis or a vagina. <laughs> it's typical in our society, I think, and I think it, there's plenty of evidence to support this, that while these terms don't necessarily correspond to man and female, it's typically those born with a penis who are socialized commit these acts of psychic self-mutilation, as Bell Hooks puts it. Right, and I think what's glaring in that statement is that masculinity harms the people that benefit from it. Even though there's all this power contained in the masculine in our society, it is killing all of us. Whether we are the victims of it or we inhabit it, it's toxic on all sides. And so you were just talking about, you've, you've touched upon it already in the, um, the attributes or the things that we attribute to masculinity or femininity. But how would you describe masculinity as a psychological disorder? And what's implied in that is that there's a cure, which is femininity. What are the main symptoms of this disorder? And what ways is femininity both a form of enslavement, but also a pathway towards our liberation from masculinity? Well, I found something that Freud said late in his life really telling. And he's not known as a critic, a critic of patriarchy, but he said, uh, from my experience, Definitely. the greatest obstacle to the successful completion of the psychoanalytic therapy is the repudiation of femininity in both men and women. And, and by that, he means in men, it's all those qualities that are essential to man, mental health and well-being, of course, the well-being of others, because others often bear the brunt of this. And in women, it's because they internalize a sense of inferiority. And, and the irony there, there is that women, not, not always, of course, demand the very men who, <laughs> who have mutilated their psyches, you know, the, often the worst of men. So both men and women, in their inability to reconcile themselves to the feminine, in that sense, reinforce the patriarchy. And it's often said that the men, and this is something that Rowan Connell, who coined the term hegemonic masculinity, says that, that men gain a dividend from patriarchy. But I, I think you know this needs to be scaled back because while there are, there are economic advantages in being, being primed to be competitive, all the damage that is done to the, the psyche, to the ego and so forth, all the struggles that, that men have, I don't see really a benefit. And, and in this topsy-turvy world, we have, we have the, the condition where under capitalism, essentially, it does pay dividends in a certain sense to, for, for one's emotions to be brittle, to be aggressively invested in status, competitive advantage, authority, and so forth. Whereas all those traits we associate with femininity, as I say, caregiving, a kindness, tenderness, 
not being afraid to reveal one's frailties, not lashing out when humiliated. These are actually qualities that that in a healthy society would would be nourished in in all of us. But they they tend to be killed off in males, if not done by the parents, then then through popular culture, the school and and, and so forth. And so in that sense, I, I describe masculinity as a capitalist ego formation and femininity as a communistic e- ego formation. So under capitalism, there are disadvantages in being feminized. But in a healthy, free society, let's say, femininity must be, in, in these senses, and, and also more technically in a libidinal sense, must be the kind of standard of all, all human subjects. I'm wondering how masculinity really lends itself to a capitalist model. I mean, in, in what ways does that manifest in places like the United States or New Zealand, for instance? I think that, so as I suggest, if we think about sort of the, the qualities that, that we tend to sort of fetishize, in a sense, under capitalism, such as strength, the competitiveness and, and, and so forth, you know, uh, pursuit of self-interest, this kind of neoliberal kind of subjectivity. These are essential to capitalism. What, what, what I do in, in Chapter 4, uh, Vectors of, of Androcentrism, is feminists have sought to sort of explain the persistence of patriarchy under capitalism through the, the function of, of female bodies to get pregnant, give birth, lactate, and, and so forth, and, and then binds women to to the home. I've come at this from an, another angle that, to ask you know whether this Ego formation is essential to capitalism. In other words, can capitalism exist without this, again, using Bell Hooks' term, mutilated psyche? And I think the answer is no. Of course, you know, we can think back to, you know, through history and all the awful things that, that men have done. But I think that, that we can say there's a, a particular ego formation sort of emerges under capitalism. We trace it back to colonization. There's a kind of like racial dimension to it, white supremacy and so forth. But I break it down into four vectors, into interconnecting vectors. And, and one is wage labor. Again, the, the aggressive pursuit of competitive advantage, which is libidinal. Of course, you know, many, many theorists have talked about capitalism as a libidinal economy. And, and in, in psychoanalytic theory, particularly in Lacan, the masculine, as uh, masculine sexuality, not necessarily male, is phallic oriented. In, in other words, it's constantly striving to man up, to represent the impossible ideal. And that perfectly lends itself, I think, to the arrangements under capitalism where we're in, put in competition with one another and compelled in, in that sense. To me. But it's not just out of necessity. I think you can say there is an investment in that, and, and that's a very powerful force. The second one is consuming labor, that, that we consume not simply to satisfy a need, but to satisfy status and so forth, that, that again, there's a phallic dimension to consuming in, 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 a, in, in a consumerist society. Now, often, of course, people associate consumption with femininity, but women are often compelled to, to dress in feminine ways in order to satisfy their boss, their partner, and, and so forth. And, and so I think we can index consuming to that kind of phallic sort of libido. And the third one, I think, is the, is the most obvious. You could trace this back through history, but it takes on particular qualities under capitalism and, and is generalized, which is repressive labor. And this kind of refers to Althusser's concept of repressive state apparatuses. And the most brutalized of men, sometimes women, of course, most dehumanized, recruited into the military, the police, and the prison industrial complex, essential for capitalist class to maintain power. And also in the kind of psychopaths that 
ruthlessly pursue their self-interest who rise to the top of the corporate ladder, become VCs of universities and so forth. And, and the, the fourth one there is, is reproductive labor. Not reproductive in the sense that the feminists often describe you know, the, the function of the female body, but in the sense of reproducing the disorder itself. And, and often it is women who are tasked with socializing their, their child, of, of brutalizing in a sense their child. And if they don't do it, then like I say, you can be sure that peers, relatives, school and so forth will, will do it on their behalf. And eventually, of course, you could say that pays dividends in this uh, awful competitive society that we live in where where there's kind of uh, engineered scarcity of jobs and so forth. Right. I mean, that's mapping. There's a whole history behind this. I think I read this really incredible book by Silvia Federici called Caliban and the Witch. And I think our whole, our very basis of capitalism would not have uh, existed without the these categories of femininity and masculinity because demography production of labor was was so correlated to like female labor in a way. And I think as you were saying, they are intrinsically linked in, in often racialized ways. And yeah, I don't know. There's just, a, there's a lot to unpack there just that we could go on in a, into a conversation about how we dehumanize people in the military or something that we've all bore witness to with Black Lives Matter movement and just seeing the police violence in the face of it. And so I think we've been having that conversation a lot about how masculinity and power are just so intrinsically linked. Yeah. And yeah, I I mean I think while the claim is provocative, I, I think most people will, will identify these traits in these sort of institutions and the police and so forth. Obvious examples being you know, the the vast majority of massacres are committed by young men, adults who feel that sense of entitlement. Now I'm thinking of people like Elliot Roger or, or Clearbold and Lewis, the Columbine killers. You know, they felt that they were the alpha males, but other people weren't recognizing that. And so they, they proved themselves that they are through, through committing these acts. In their case, and in the case of Clearbold and Lewis, they then killed themselves. And by killing themselves, you're no longer subject to the symbolic law. You're no longer subject to humiliation and so forth. You're forever real and possible men. The real man is a dead man. The real father is, is a dead father. Right. And I think the conversation in the United States around gun violence, I mean, obviously the unchecked, just drastic deregulation of, of guns in this country lends itself to mass shootings, but I think it is intrinsically connected to this rise of incel culture and just like toxic masculinity sort of reproducing itself in this very extreme form of violence. Because you do hear in those examples that you mentioned, just uh, a hatred of, of women and femininity because of sex or yeah, just a sort of this like lone wolf narrative that I think gets reproduced constantly in conversations about gun violence in this country. Yeah, I, I think that, that in, you know, you mentioned misogyny and, and again, this is a strong claim, but I think that this repudiation of femininity, which of course is, is, is relative, is essentially misogynistic. And I think we have to deal with this kind of problem in ourselves. So one of the things I try to do the book, and this is kind of what I'm saying at the beginning, is 
not focus just on those extreme examples, but also look at how this repudiation operates more generally. And, and, and an obvious, again, an obvious one, I'm sure anybody listening to this will recognize, is just how rare it is to encounter someone in everyday life and not at some kind of club or whatever, who, let's say, has the physique of a male who wears feminine items. I mean, this is you know, my experience in, in that sense is that wherever I go, all times, I'm always seeing people look at me, stare at me, obviously passing judgment, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. And it's hard to say, of course, in, in most cases. But I sometimes wear masculine clothing. And like I did so the other day, and I had my nails are professionally done, and they're long and, and they're red. And I was queuing up in a shop, and a woman literally recoiled at the sight. And I think so, So, of course, we, we can't know anything about a person simply by the way they dress, unless they perhaps have a swastika on or something. The fact that, that the vast majority of men, perhaps even non-binary, do not deviate in any meaningful way onto these kind of, by, by appropriating these feminine signifiers does suggest that society as a whole has a problem with femininity. It's not just about dress. It goes deeper into those very qualities that are essential to mental health and well-being. I think, yeah, I know. I really appreciate that you're stressing this point because while I was just talking about the most extreme forms of masculine violence in our societies, I agree that I think what's so insidious about this power is is how mundane it is and daily. And I don't know. It, I mean, with the whether it takes the form of microaggressions or interactions like the ones that you were just talking about of just presenting in this way that people reject because it doesn't fit into a certain category of, of masculinity or femininity. But in your book, you describe masculinity as this sort of porous term, despite the construct, that social construct, it, I think it's, it's perceived typically masculinity, meaning as a fixed concept. And I think that's your example kind of highlights that. Can you talk more on the limitations of the language that we're using and, and labels in general? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems I have with a lot of the discourse around masculinity and femininity, gender more generally, is, is that we're kind of premature in saying that we express ourselves in a multiplicity of ways. There are genders in the nth degree, masculinities in the nth degree, to the point where these terms become meaningless. Can we just say we've got, we, we all have different personalities? And again, it comes back to that kind of exception that proves the rule, that the kind of standing out from the crowd simply by having red nail varnish on, is that people clock in microsecond when one deviates from the masculine. If we think of the like the fashion for, for gender-neutral clothing, for example, gender-neutral clothing is essentially clothing in which the, the feminine has been cancelled out because you know men can't deal with clothing that in any way references femininity, not in any any significant way. I mean, men wear pink sometimes, but so what? You know, that's, these signifiers shift over time. So back in sort of 100 years ago or so, pink was considered a boy's color, and now it's considered, of course, a girl's color. So while you could, for instance, come to a point in time where dresses is considered masculine, but in any case, it's what in any given moment is considered feminine that is that is repudiated. 
And I develop a, a typology of masculinities. I, I, I probably it's too much to go into this now, but I reject Connell's uh, concept of hegemonic masculinity for various reasons, part, partly because she paints such a bleak picture of, of men and the ideals that they strive for and, and find honor in that you think, while most men can probably say to themselves, that's not me. I, I you're some middle class sort of educated white person typically can look at all these men uh, with their so-called toxic masculinities and, and, uh, disavow any problem in themselves. But in this typology, I, I again sort of index all masculinities to the relative repudiation of femininity and the need for phallic substance supplements. And so I've got three typologies, uh, uh, rams, arms, rams. So it's a rams, a reactive, aggravated masculinity. So those most brittle kind of masculinities, the Trump types, the predators on, on female subordinates and and so forth, the alpha bullies, etc. And they hold to a very rigid notion of masculinity and anything that kind of deviates from that, they, they find extremely challenging. You know, the, the psychopaths, this extreme, this, this pole. And the polar opposite of that, there are the REMs, the reflective experimental masculinities, you know, men or non-binary who are kind of more ease in their masculinity in the sense that, that they express themselves in feminine ways that they're not easily affronted or, or regress to a kind of violence when sort of their frailties are exposed. And more so than, than you kind of typical, let's say, liberal male, they may sort of wear feminine things. So I'm thinking of like, let's say my hero, somebody like Prince, who, who's at gender was ambiguous he wore makeup etc so so they would be the opposing end of the spectrum and 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 like the kind of effect of the moon on the tide these rams and rams push the kind of idea of masculinity in one direction or the other rams stretch the definition one might hope to break in point whereas the the rams try to contract the idea of masculinity in between are the, the kind of broader spectrum of masculinities that i call arms avoidant, restrictive masculinities. And and maybe quite controversially to the listener, I position someone like Barack Obama as the, the calibrated ideal. So this notion of a calibrated masculinity replaces Connell's for, for various reasons. And that's always shifting. So so we could say the far right of the, in the ascendancy at the moment, the kind of those who are, are more openly misogynistic and sexist, and it's, it's pushing the, the calibrated masculinity towards it and there's a kind of opposing effect as well which of course differs within different spaces and and at different times you know in, in, in maybe in the center of new york it's more towards the the rems end of the spectrum so in that respect i think you can it's a way to think of how the idea of masculinity changes over time through these push and pull factors and my argument would be we need to stretch masculinity to the breaking point where it becomes a meaningless term 